we shouldn't care how we recover. We, we call a survivor Jack, right? So we do it for Jack. We don't care how we recover Jack, whether it's uh, a soft team on a local nationals fishing boat that's able to get them or our pararescuemen in their own boat who are going out to get them or it's a, a marine helicopter. It may not have a hoist, but it can certainly land like wherever and pick them up. So joint fight, trying to get them with any asset possible. The point is that it's survivor centric. So for CSAR, our number one needle points to the survivor and everybody's just like focused on getting Jack. Tower Welcome back, Shiner, man. You are you're moving up in the world. You're you're Bob now. You're you're the boss. So for those listening, I'm gonna re-release the episodes we recorded. You gotta go check out Shiner because we we dive deep into your distinguished flying cross you got in Afghanistan, which I just like envision the images in my head of uh, what you were describing, just getting lit up, A10 strafing over you, and you guys did some good work and saved some same save some people. So I'll re-release those episodes. You also like left a few there I was stories. So you've been on the podcast, but it's been a few years. And now you're in a different spot. So, dude, can you give me an update where you are in the world and what, what's going on with you? Yeah, thanks for having me back on, Rain. I appreciate it. It's good to see you. Uh, so since we last talked, I was the DO at Nellis, the 66 Rescue Squadron, which we uh, closed that squadron uh, and uh, historic place, uh, moved on to Kadena with a lot of the, the folks, the operators from the 66th. So I'm the commander of the 33rd Rescue Squadron at Kadena Air Base, Japan, in the Raikuyu Islands, so the most southwest part of Japan. We're talking a lot of combat search and rescue today, and search and rescue in general, but the laydown, so the 66 is closed, and we, there's a mix right now between the HH-60G, Pavehawk, and then the Whiskey, which is the new variant, and I want to dig in and talk about that today. But as you talk about, all right, hey, we... Uh, we have the squadron out Kadena, which you're leading the charge there. What happened with Nellis? What, where are the other squadrons at? What's the kind of the force posture of the, the rescue so, world these days? Yeah, so Nellis was one of the two uh, big squadrons, three UTCs, uh, three deployable flights there and at Moody at the 41st Rescue Squadron. And, uh, you know, higher leadership guidance was to close the rescue operations at Nellis and move those to DM in effect, uh, to include one day, probably the weapons school and the test squadron. Uh, and that included guardian angel for pararescue as well. And that kind of leaves the force posture now with, uh, the 41st at Moody, which has all whiskey model H sixties now and, uh, G models going under conversion at DM at the 55th RQS. And then we have our guard reserve components as well. And we've got folks from the 33rd actually up in Alaska helping those guys out with a backfill and a deployment uh, flying out of the Anchorage and Eielson for uh, support missions. You know what sounds terrible to me? <laughs> flying in Alaska. And flying in Alaska to helicopter. <laughs> sounds absolutely terrible. Yeah. Uh, no, it's awesome. My, uh, 
one of my best friends from co-pilot times at Kadena is, is up there in a leadership role. And we, you know, got a fam flight when we sent some of the squadron up, but did a ski on landing at 10,000 feet in the Alaska range. That's spicy. Pretty 10,000 feet. Yeah. 10,000 feet for old helicopter. Yeah. You're, you're working to do that. I would imagine. It's a, it's a high DA, uh, marginal power situation, but there's skis on the helicopter and you, you slide it on and then it's a whiteout for a few minutes after that. And then once the snow settles, you can see again, basically. So you hope you don't land in a crevasse, but those guys are the experts up there. Um, and they're, they've been doing great work for years, rescuing people and it's letting the 33rd folks get some really uh, amazing real life experience rescuing uh, backcountry skiers and medevacking folks that need help and super marginal weather. It's pretty cool uh, integration with the guard reserve up there. You know, with the air force component of the Hilo world being relatively small, especially compared to the fixed wing assets we have, do you guys do a lot of cross training with the army or is there any kind of integration where there's like pollinate? I mean, army's flying a lot of those helicopters around. Sure. Does that exist or is that just something that, I don't know. No, interestingly, we do not have a kind of an ongoing exchange with the army, but our UPT starts at Fort Rucker. So there's kind of a, a synergy from the beginning there with kind of the, the Brown suitor instructor pilots or a lot of former army in, in my time, at least former Vietnam pilots with, you know, a million hours teaching you on the Huey that was in Vietnam with them. Probably it's just been repainted and given a glass cockpit. I, I flew with a guy not too long ago who was a B1 guy by trade, became a test pilot. And then when he got out of active duty, he became, he got hired down at Patrick flight H860s. So late in his career, he has to go through and learn how to fly the Huey. And the story he told, like his first flight was hilarious. It was, I mean, a day that no fixed wing pilot, especially in the beginning of their training would have considered flying in the contact phase, you know, where you need like day VFR, beautiful weather. He's like, it was like overcast at like 150 feet. And we go flying down this road in a trail of like 11 helicopters. to like hover in this field. And then we circle back around and we come back up the road and land. He's like, it was like a 12 minute sortie, but everyone's like, yep, that's good. And it was like all these old Vietnam dudes who were I don't know, yeah, smoking funny. a cigarette and not even thinking about it. Yeah. What, what we do have exchange wise is a real healthy exchange with the U S Navy and, uh, Typically, the Marine Corps. We also have exchanges with the British and uh, Germans and the French, and I think recently Italy. But right now, we have our naval exchange pilot at the 33rd. And so okay. that serves a really useful kind of cross pollination, cross sell. And they're usually an experienced pilot, a flight leader, instructor pilot that comes over for a three year tour and trades helicopter knowledge with us. One of the two, like from my limited experience, casual, just trying to absorb stuff up as a young dude in the Air Force, a lot of different challenges with operating at night, a lot of different challenges operating at night over the water, dealing in and around boats and things of that nature. I Random sidebar, but like obviously where you're at doing rescues out over the water and dealing with ships. Are there significant challenges when it comes to landing a helicopter like on a boat? With I see these videos, right, where the helicopter is coming aboard and then something's changing with, I guess, the dynamic 
the cushioning or whatever it is, and then it goes away, and then the helicopter ends up rolling over, and it doesn't end well. What like what are some of those challenges? So it's uh, it's a, a qualification, and it's a it's a memorandum of understanding between all the DoD components to fly helicopters to land on U.S. ships, and so the U.S. Navy's the lead on it, but there's qualification for single spot and then multi spot landings on ships. And the single spot where your rotor has, you know, maybe 20 feet clearance from the superstructure on a small destroyer is pretty spicy. And there's pitch and roll limits from the LSO on the ship that they'll pass. And you have to land within those limits for normal operations. Uh, and in some of those videos that are really dramatic, I can picture the British Lynx trying to land on a, a British ship and it's way out of limits, pitch and roll. And they're finally able to, to land it, but it's uh, really spicy. But that qualification sometimes is just maintained by a few instructor pilots and uh, instructor special mission aviators or flight engineers. And then you from that pyramid, you can qualify people if you have to go to a war at sea or go to contingency ops at sea. But for the 33rd now, there's multiple reasons why we'd have to go land on a ship for uh, integration or medevac or some sort of patient transload. So we do try to maintain that qualification. Uh, and it is, I don't know, if you've flown for a while, things kind of get normalized. When you go to the tanker and you haven't seen the drogue in a while, sometimes you'll that'll get your uh, hair up on your neck a little if it's bumpy. But when you get to a ship and you haven't landed on a ship before, it is uh, like it's a significant experience for the first time doing it. It's pretty wild. And uh, recently we were able to land on a Coast Guard ship that was out here, U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, right. Blue open ocean. Yeah, it was kind of cool. That's that's quite a ways away. But a lot of stuff happened out there in the Pacific. Um, yes. It's a busy, busy theater these days. It's been a pivot towards the Pacific last few years. Talk to me a little bit about the HA60G, the whiskey, and you mentioned upgrades going on at DM. Is that a, is it a conversion to the whiskey? What what is what does it look like? So the H60G fleet is our legacy fleet, and we flew those uh, through basically all their lifespan in Afghanistan and Iraq during the war, the war on terror. Basically, uh, they're they're good helicopters. They're workhorses. They were Lima model Army Blackhawks that we then kind of Frankenhawk modded to become the Pavok. And they've, in a lot of ways, reached the end of their life cycle. We were able to buy some replacement aircraft that were new aircraft, and they have like 2,000 hours on them now. So they're still pretty functional tails with longevity. So those have been kind of pushed to the top of the fleet and now are pushed to the guard reserve units. To uh, They're going to be the last to convert to the whiskey, but the entire force for Air Force Rotary Wing CSARs converting to the H60 Whiskey, which is the newest version of the Blackhawk uh, produced by Lockheed Sikorsky. And DM is almost complete with their conversion to the Whiskey now. And they're helping us convert a couple of our air crew. And then we're going to start, we get our first tails uh, in January. So two whiskeys, and then we start converting. And by August of next year, we should be all Whiskey Squadron. So that'll be good. It's on the ramp. Is it a big challenge or is it a big process to convert over to the whiskey for the air crew? It seems so. I haven't gone through yet, but it seems fairly reasonable. It starts with a 
type one conversion, which is done with Sikorsky instructors and simulator. And then it has tactical seasoning that's flown with Air Force instructor pilots that are previously qualified. And there was an initial cadre that was the folks that, that basically got it IOC and uh, rode the Vol 3 and got all the, or still developing the tactics, if you will. But it has a lot more capability and it's a, a new airframe. It's it's still a helicopter. It's still a Blackhawk. So it's not going to fly four miles a minute. It's still going to fly two miles a minute, but it's going to hover really well. And it's going to have a FMS that when coupled can provide pretty significant factors of safety over the water and maybe probably all terrain to an extent. And it's just going to be better at everything than a helicopter is good at. I'm guessing too, it's like, uh, you know, for me going from the F-16 to a big old fat plane, honestly, the, the challenge even to stay, right. It's like the automation piece. It's so capable with the FMS, the automation, knowing how to, what buttons to push and when to do it and get the jet to do what you want it to do. Like that's honestly like the, the challenge, which is much different than like, I just want to go over there. So I'm going to turn and point and, and do that. Sounds like, yeah, probably the whiskey. But like, I, I, we were talking about like the safety margins over the water. There's making sure that you put in all the right things so that it has the information is probably, so obviously crucial, but an incredible capability once you're using it. Sure. So I think the data in is critical there, right? To fly you safely over the water. Um, but in this way, like, I think CFIT and just fatigue, it'll mitigate that significantly. And I, I agree. I think figuring out how to get the right data into the, the aircraft is going to be critical. And then knowing nuances where if if it can do a turning approach and fly it itself back to the spot, like it's not going to know where the train is or necessarily where the winds are in the way the pilot does. So there will be nuances of you know how to fly it yourself, but also let the FMS fly it to the extent that it makes a factor of safety for you. For instance, we've hand flown all our brownout or whiteout landings for 30 years in the G model. And the, the RE does that even without a FLIR or cues in some cases with their, their mic models, Blackhawks. But in this case, the FMS can just take you to a hover and then vertically land you. And it mitigates significant risk of being IMC at 50 feet and having to like zero out your velocity vector to the ground. So that's a huge factor safety. And then for kind of our bread and butter out of Kadena is night water rescue, open ocean. So really no horizon, cloud cover, really limited uh, ambient lighting from stars or moon because it's blocked by the clouds. And then no cultural lighting from shore or ship, just open ocean, nighttime, low alum with the FMS on the whiskey I think it'll make what used to be the most complicated or the hardest skill set we did kind of a, a straightforward path from, from the beginning. And we've already pivoted culturally in our squadrons to qualify all our folks in night water, which is kind of the necessary skill set, at least at Kadena right now. And this will mitigate a lot of that as well. And it's got more powerful engines, better blades, uh, you know, full avionics suite that's just not 30 years old. It's new. It's great. Yeah, it's crazy to think, you know, when I was casual at Moody, Yeah, this is 2000, 
2007, 2008, and it's like, hey, the new the new rescue vehicle is going to be announced any day now. And it took 13 years or so for it to be announced. And then the number went from, what, like 112, 115? And then the Air Force said, hey, we're cutting that to 80-some-odd aircraft. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. And it was 112, and then it was cut down to 75 with the Air Force purchase. But then Congress has added 10 to that to 85, and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, it's interesting. So that's what I need that Bones Cook on here, Paul Sheets, yeah. one of those guys. They're, they're my flight commanders back in the day. Um, from but it's, it, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, yeah. Just this, just just how fast time goes. Sure. And, yeah, where where it is. So I remember you talk about the fatigue. Like that, I didn't know anything, right? But I can appreciate it now, thinking back. I remember uh, Paul. He was doing an upgrade ride for a new guy out of uh, Albuquerque. So he's doing MQT, and we're going out doing, um, yeah, CSAR with some A-10s doing an upgrade for a Sandy mission. And I remember like we were we orbited for like an hour and a half, like just doing it. And I remember watching him eat a sandwich up front while the other guy just like flew the helicopter the entire time. I was like, gosh, you know, man, it's like be nice to put this thing on autopilot for a little bit. But um, yeah, it's funny. That, but again, I remember it's like any day now, yeah, we're gonna get a new new helicopter, new platform to go out there and do combat search and rescue because just the, just like the F-16, just like the F-15, all these things were fragged for 2,000 hours, 4,000 hours on the airframe and then just service life extension after service life extension to keep bumping these things out, keep racking up so much time on them. So, yeah, there's 12,000 hours on the golfs. It's crazy. It's too many hours, right? What you, yeah, so the 308 beam, which is a, the structural longitudinal beam starts cracking and it used to be a one-time flight to depot to have it repaired and now you just basically stop gap it with a, a mount or a brace and then it just cracks further aft <laughs> a little while later you just keep moving it aft it's fine I mean, my statement of helicopters just shaking themselves apart it still yeah. stands to this day but fine. yeah it's gonna it's gonna buff out but the eagle a good jump on that is like the eagles i think yeah if you look at um the ones at Kadena, right? They plucked those off the island rather quickly last year. Now we're doing a bunch of theater security packages out there, which I think you said the Eagles show back up. But all those all those jets were fragged for a couple thousand hours, and then one extension after another, and then a couple of them, you know, snap in half, no big deal. I'll be curious, like the F sixteen. Have you seen like the wing flex? I mean, no, I haven't you know. seen it on F sixteen. I saw the video of the C model snap in half. Yeah, now where you want to be. I was just like, if you think about like carrying all the external fuels and bombs and stuff like that, just going out there and pulling like five Gs on it, like just the amount of strain it's putting on uh, all these jets. But we're flying them hard, so it's. I take it it's busy out there uh, in the Pacific for you. It is busy. It's uh, it's a deployed in place feel, but it's it's kind of uh, special in some ways, like the kind of family feel and camaraderie in the squadron is unique. It's, you don't see that at CONUS units, I don't think. And there's like a task and purpose and people know why they're here. They know why they're coming to work every day. Uh, we're able to go support, you know, missions that are maintaining the free and open Indo-Pacific, but we're 
flying alerts and sitting alerts for single seat folks and then also supporting uh you know local search and recovery missions and then integrating with exercises kind of across the pacific so we've been to brunei we've been to guam we've we've been up to alaska both to supplement the mission there and for red flag uh so there's you know we have a, a twice yearly rescue exercise in korea with a10s so there's a, a lot of uh, kind of focus on the mission here, and it's it's right at hand. So it's a it's a different feel. But it is busy. We've got the expeditionary fighter squadrons here flying, and we're able to integrate with them. Uh, we've had really good integration with F-35s recently, both to practice uh, kind of like immediate actions on scene command for a PR event and kind of red blue air with them as well and it we're just kind of like vetting our tactics and continuing to uh tweak them to just remain really pretty survivable in the pacific fight for pr so with the right tanker support low speed drogue off a hcmc or um or kc-130 that's in an offset from the area we're able to get gas and support and be honestly very survivable in uh integrated fight with a lot of game i think for let's talk P i want to talk pr so personnel recovery let's talk that piece and then i'd like to kind of transition into yeah a more of a dynamic and high threat environment especially when we're comparing between afghanistan and iraq the the threat in the pacific near peer adversaries like big things can reach out and hit you and not not feel good well, let's talk personnel recovery what does that look like from either like day-to-day -day operations where you're supporting training? If you got, you know, a single seat fighter, you know, crew that's going out there and they're just doing training and God forbid someone has to punch out. What does that look like for, from the, uh, you guys launching to going, be able to find them to, you know, if you had to go out and do a big blue water rescue, like it's taught me like through the, I guess the search and rescue piece where there's, it's a non-threatening environment. Like, what does that look like? What? Yeah. So for a permissive environment, we'll sit night finder alert for our single seat or two seat with the strike eagles out here. Sometimes we'll, we'll support night fighter alert. Uh, and that is our standard support at Kadena. We have very competent professional partners with the jazz staff here. So they fly an H 60 J, which is similar to a pave hawk with a aerial refueling probe. They also have external tanks. So they have, you know, a four hour, kind of airborne time similar to the the pave hawk and they they handle daytime search and rescue in the japanese okay. territorial waters so they do daytime sar for any of our fast movers at kadena and then kind of with nighttime as our special skill set that we train to in a way uh other folks don't we support night rescue so any 18th wing asset for instance that flies at night single seat, we're going to be on alert for that on an M plus 30. And uh, it's all permissive environment, but we'll, at the step brief, we'll, or the show brief, we'll brief kind of the MOA or the area they'll be flying. And then we'll do an alert standards brief with our guardian angel crews. So our two pair rescue men that'll be on alert that night. But then we'll go fly our uh, unit training program plan. So our 
whatever upgrades going on or whatever CT continuation trainings going on. We'll fly that simultaneously, but we'll know where and when our jets are flying. So for instance, we, we executed a dry run with F-35s recently. They simulated unlucky jet, called it in through the right C2 channels, both to us and to the, the tower. And we were able to re-roll airborne mission, come get our, our PJs, get gas, and then pivot straight to that area. And so then you're, you're switching from, you know, kind of your LARPing, your live action role play of whatever <laughs> mission you're pretending you're on your imaginary <laughs> stack. And then you're switching to maybe the other side of the island or a different airspace, getting gas either from a airborne tanker from the ramp at Kadena, which is a fuel truck. And then there's also a Marine base here for Tenma that has Marines that just pop out of a hole in the ground and refuel your helicopter in, in minutes. It's really fast, great, great contingency gas, and then press straight out. And then you work with the, the Guardian team to plan what kind of pickup they would want. And it's normally going to be uh, one bird is going to mark the survivor with a persistent signal. The other is going to then support them either with an offset hover or in a like a, a spooky, a circle pattern around them or something as they pick up the survivor. To find the survivor right, we're going to have to T2 their, their C-cell and our aircraft radio is able to find and interrogate that. But we can also home on beacons and use the wingman to keep eyes on to find them. But that that critical locate piece is is difficult. And even if you locate them, we have you know constant data that things move in the water, right? One mile in 15, 30 minutes, possibly if the tides are really strong. But you can see folks drift five kilometers in a, a matter of what feel like minutes airborne, but might be 30 minutes to an hour. And then maybe they'll get pushed back to where they were with coastal currents and life rafts drift differently than people in the water and also then a, a floating aircraft or something. So all of that floats and drifts differently. So even if they had initial eyes on, it might not be there. So we'd execute a search pattern in that case. And we have, we integrate with the Coast Guard to get search data from them, which is a computer model program. So we'll have that printed for the expected drift currents and the parachute's going to drift. So we're trying to locate them, but then it's just going to be a straight commit to a 70 foot, hundred foot hover, send the hoist down with one PJ in the strop. If the pilot's ambulatory and then put them in the strop and pull them back up barrel in with them in the PJ together. And then if it's a significant injury or multiple survivors, we'll, we'll either fast rope or helo cast 10 feet, 10 knots. Uh, over the water, our pararescue men will jump out. They'll swim to the survivor. We'll infill the second bird's pararescue men. They'll prep them on a Stokes litter, and then we'll hoist them up to the aircraft. Each helicopter carrier two PJs, is that like the normal? That's the normal combat loadout. For a SIV-SARS scenario, it could be just two, but we'd still fly in a formation possibly for mutual support, hoist redundancy, and then we could possibly split that team one on each aircraft to work different patients but for a training mission 
where we're integrating, we'll have two PJs or a pro and a PJ and two PJs on the other aircraft. So two and two. And they fast rope in the water versus. So if, I mean, yeah. So if we stay high, the engines won't get salt on them. And so you can actually salt out your engines and reduce your power margins so that you enter compressor stalls in a low hover over the ocean. And so for a fast, effective rescue, the, the last thing you want to do is fly over the horizon, open ocean, and then saw your engines out in the first 30 seconds of trying to rescue somebody. So if you can stay higher, it's better. So a fast rope, 30 feet might mitigate a lot of that salt spray. Get your uh, rescue men into the water there, and then you can hoist them out. But if the winds and the, the salt spray is conducive, a helo cast, you can fly straight to the point. You might blow the life raft away, so that's a consideration too. But you can get pretty precise with that. Put your team in, then pick up to a high hover and just basically offset so that the sound isn't drowning them out too bad and you want to get them out of the rotor wash, obviously. There's there's nothing worse than being in the water under rotor wash and all the, the noise of the helicopter. So you I don't know. From the if I punched out, I guess I wouldn't care too much. I'd just be sure. just like the greatest. This would be the greatest sound on earth. The salting out your motors, I assume that's a known thing, not in a, you're assuming because you're probably seeing like an EGT rise or yeah. I don't know if you guys. Yep. So we write down our TGTs. We look at our TGTs at a given power setting, maybe 50% torque before we commit to uh, below 100 feet, let's say in that case. And you see whatever temperature you're pulling, 680 or something. And then you look at if it rises after each iteration. You do okay. a, a check on downwind and effect on each subsequent pattern. And then if it rises 20 degrees or 40 degrees, you have different kind of mitigators you take. And then you knock it off at a certain point or switch aircraft real world if you uh, can't knock it off. Okay. And then for those listening, EGT, I'm referencing that. I mean, I guess different planes use different different things, but exhaust gas temperature. So you know what what's pumping out there. And TGT, I guess, is turbine gas temperature. Yeah, correct. Um, it's and that's, uh, yeah, say, yeah, just probably different makers or models. The, when you like rolling back through, if, if you do something like that, are they ripping the motor apart each time to like look and do inspections or is that like going through the bird bath and once you like wash it out, like, Hey, we're good. Yeah. So it's, it's that basically we'll go through the bird bath, then we'll do on our return flight, we'll do a hit check, so a health indicator check for the engine. If it passes that, then we'll go through the bird bath and we'll we'll rinse the engine. So they just pump, you know, clear water through the engine basically as we uh, run the starter, and then we'll do that on both engines. We'll start the engines, we'll run it, and then shut it back down. But if we bust the hit check and the engines are not passing they've degraded significantly we will then wash it with soap that's a pretty corrosive soap and it cleans the uh the blades with with the salt on them off and then we'll start back up run it then go do another health indicator check and then it typically passes because you're you're washing that salt off it's not necessarily degrading it in the way that sand will eat at the the compressor blades or uh, destroy the actual engine with 
with friction, the saw is just like building up and can be washed off. So it's not damaging it. It is probably damaging it long-term and that soap isn't good for it. Corrosion wise, I don't think, but it, you can clean it and then go back on alert so they don't have to tear it down. Yeah. This is basically a recruiting advertisement for becoming a helicopter pilot. I feel like <laughs> go fly out overnight over the water and just a bunch of salt water. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. Fly back. Yeah. It's going to be great. No, uh, dude, it's, I mean, it's spicy stuff and it's impressive. And it, now these are like simple, benign questions, but to me, like, it's really interesting when you start breaking this down and that I think, I mean, you take for granted not being a helicopter pilot, like that yeah, is make it look easy, but like landing on a ship, it looks easy, but like, there's so many variables that are going into it, hovering at night over the water with like no discernible horizon. That sounds, I don't know if you can do it, but it sounds terrible to me, but I imagine there's situations worth, you just think too, is like the swells of the ocean right and like how far you can actually see but obviously the lower you get yeah you, know, you can't see as much but i just imagine in the swells if you got a dude hanging out in a dinghy like just finding them it's a needle in a haystack now granted there's technology and if everything's working right you should be able to hone in on but like one individual sitting in a dinghy or two in a dinghy like it's in big open water eh, not an easy thing to find right that fine fix you know track target isn't a great acronym for this but it is kind of the same process to uh f2t to someone and you just don't want to finish them you want finishing you is like picking them you want to <laughs> get them into the helicopter safely right um but that is kind of the the process will run and it is just like critical to get you know any location data on them and for sivsar stuff uh like garmin inreach and shout nano and Systems like that provide like incredible fidelity with whatever satellite network it's using. And you can, our folks are rescuing skiers up in Alaska within 30 minutes of notification in the backcountry with like within meters of the, the location they needed to be at. Cause, all right, correct me if I'm wrong. You, uh, I imagine probably the ops desk, right? Like you guys don't have any tie into like Garmin inReach. But there's a rescue coordination center. There's one, is Northcom, like down in Tyndall. I think it's back there now after the hurricane. But if there's some kind of civilian event that goes on, they have the ability to pull that data or, re or get the information from the appropriate resources and then pump that to the squadrons? Yeah, correct. So in CONUS, it's the AFRCC out of Florida. And so they have, they're 24-7. They have really high fidelity and they'll get... We would do missions in Zion National Park, for instance, out of uh, Vegas. So their ops officer, their park ranger at Zion would say, hey, our, our, we need uh, nighttime assets. Our contract helicopter can't support into nighttime, for instance, or the voice isn't long enough. So they would then write, or they would kind of call the squander to notify them, but they would know AFRCC is the place to call. They'd call the rescue coordination center, give them the data off either the, the cell phone hit or the Garmin inReach or whatever coordinates or information. AFRCC would give it a mission number and basically vet it as a uh, civilian request for military assistance, pass it to local rescue units, whether it's Army or Air Force. In that same process works in Alaska with the PRCC there, or the Alaska Rescue Coordination Center. Uh, 
well-oiled machines, similar to how JPRC would work in in SecCom or uh, you know a COCOM. With the the joint piece of it, what other assets does the our other branches bring to it? Coast Guard. I mean, I think everyone's seen movies with Coast Guard swimmers like jumping into the ocean. Yeah. Again, that sounds terrifying. But when it comes to like the Army, the Navy, the Marines, I mean, the Coast Guard, where, how do they fit into the personnel recovery system? What what assets, what what tools do they bring to the toolbox? So PR is a, it's a team fight. It's a team sport. And we shouldn't care how we recover. We, we call a survivor Jack, right? So we do it for Jack. We don't care how we recover Jack whether it's uh, a soft team on a local nationals fishing boat that's able to get them or our pararescuemen in their own boat who are going out to get them or it's a, a marine helicopter. It may not have a hoist, but it can certainly land like wherever and pick them up. So joint fight, trying to get them with any asset possible. For SIBSAR, for like the U.S. or Alaska, the, the Coast Guard, you know, does a tremendous job um, flying in some really nasty water conditions. We were able to send a pilot and one of our SMAs, so our flight engineer gunner, to the rescue, uh, the, the swift water, not swift water, but it's the, the Coast Guard Severe Water Rescue School in Astoria, Oregon. And they, okay. they just do rescues in, in huge waves. They have a, a pretty good factor of safety to train there. But you just learn uh, pretty fascinating techniques to rescue people in uh, really challenging sea conditions. So the Coast Guard, that's their bread and butter. And then they have have ships with helicopters on them as well. What Air Force PR does best probably is kind of like really marginal weather flights and flights that are really long distance that require aero refueling. So whether that's uh, over the horizon missions, over the ocean, where the this HC-130 can fly with the Guardian team and they can parachute them in with a, a, a Rams kit, so a small Zodiac-type boat to the survivor, and then that same HC-130 can refuel us en route. And in the case of Alaska, our folks have been doing 10-hour missions with the, the 210th Rescue Squadron there, from Anchorage all the way west to say like Little Diamond Island, which is almost in Russia. And they'll do multiple aerial refuelings. They'll pick the patient up in an area that the C-130 can't land at. And then they'll fly to the first place the HC-130 can land at. They'll transload the patient to them and then they'll fly them to the, the best medical care as quickly as they can. And then in, in some cases for high DA, like Mount Rainier or uh, Hood, you'll see Chinooks is the best asset for high altitude stuff on those mountains. Things above 10,000. Yeah. So the, the long range stuff, which I think this probably can then kind of segue into uh, a non-permissive environment. So I remember riding around, like listening to these like CSAR briefs. So you got A-10s doing the Sandy mission, doing rescort, escorting the rescue assets in. But I think, yeah, as A-10 gets divested over time, we've had this conversation on other podcasts, like, well, you know, like who who picks it up? I think they said the Viper is the best platform to do it, but uh, neither here nor there. The That piece, that's a very complex mission set. So going in to 
bad guy land and picking up Jack. Like, can you talk to me? Uh, what um, kind of the, has anything changed for you when it's like, hey, now we're, that you're being escorted by a fighter platform to get into a point? Obviously, it's it's a hostile environment, so non permissive. What's what's going on? What does that planning look like? What is what's that temperament like? So to fly with Sandys is is pretty great. Uh, we've been able to train with them in the Pacific for years with the the 25th uh, out of Korea. And so we'll either go to Osan and train with them there, or we've gone down to the Philippines integrated um, with with uh, Filipino military forces and then flown SARTAF, Search and Rescue Task Force flights. And then in Afghanistan was able to do a, C, a real CSAR with A-10s. But in this case, they Sandy 3-4 rescorts and protects the the, the rescue vehicles as we're in route, and then Sandy 1 and 2 go overhead the survivor, and they're able, similar radios to the H-60 or the H-130, they're able to integrate with that survivor's radio and get um, location and authentication and able to, to communicate that way. That's critical, and I think the rescort role can be really important in uh, areas maybe like the Korean theater of operations, potentially um, possibly Europe, uh, Middle East for, for big open ocean, that critical piece could be really getting to Jack and authenticating, interrogating, getting a good location, and then doing kind of the Sandy one role where the, the pickup vehicles, the helicopters in this case are able to somewhat permissively transit open ocean and then use tactics to mitigate a threat close to Jack to be able to get them. I'll, I'll throw back. I did an episode for those listening with Habu. This is uh, I forgot episode number, but it's going to be low eighties. Habu is a 10 pilot. We do talk about the rest court combat search and rescue and the various Sandy roles. Cause that's, that's a complex mission set uh, that they 10 does there. And each Sandy, Sandy one, two and three and four all have a different role when it comes to doing, doing something like this. So check that episode out for those who are curious about the Sandy mission. But um, interesting, I want to, can you explain to me the importance of like authentication or like getting to him and like how that works for someone who doesn't quite necessarily understand or is familiar with that? So to be able to authenticate the survivor just gives you a proof of life, date, time stamp, make sure that it's not a spoofer that, somebody's not trying to have a, a search and rescue trap in that the survivor's not compromised. Um, and it, it really focuses everybody because it, it speaks to the mission in that this is a much higher probability of finding Jack now because they're authenticating, you know, where they're at versus not being able to do that. Maybe seeing a shoot, but not being able to talk to them and then losing them in foliage or the ocean and, and you could say, I, th I think I saw them, but I haven't authenticated them. But being able to get some proof of life and know it's your dude who authenticates and it's not the enemy and being able to uh, do that live and timely is, is critical. And so if the A-10 divests to replace that role is going to be like Hobby was saying, like a mindset right? Like CSAR can be done by any platform with the right mindset, the right training. 
uh, and there's some of the right equipment needed also to yeah. to integrate with those radios. So I think that piece, if solved, you can then kind of pivot the Sandy One role, especially with a lot of the folks going from the A10 to maybe the F35, and they can take that that culture of combat rescue mindset to a new platform and then still provide some of that rescort, but a lot of that Sandy One uh, integration with the survivor. And for thinking back to Habu's podcast, the point is that it's survivor-centric. So for CSAR, our number one needle points to the survivor and everybody's just like focused on getting jacked, whether it's the strike asset or the, the recovery vehicles. And for strike, the I would imagine the number one needle points to the threat or the enemy. So if a JTAC's passing you a nine line, those coordinates are going to be for the target. But if our, our team passes us a close combat attack, their coordinates are going to be for that or the survivor. So it's just this kind of pivot in mindset. Um, but to fly with Sandy's is, is tremendous. Sandy three will in four will rescort you in a daisy chain or, or some, some tactic as they, they move you across the train and then they'll strike targets or hold you as appropriate and then hand you off to Sandy one and two who've been protecting the survivor up to that point. And there's no lack of, of heroic stories from Vietnam with, with the Sky Raider Sandy pilots escorting in helos and then re-rolling a rescue to pick up Sandy who's shot down during the mission themselves. I think no more noble of a cause than the combat search and rescue mission set. It's like that was my lip, right? That's the motto. So it doesn't doesn't right. get more than that. The the uh, proof of life piece. I fully did not grasp that concept probably until Seer. You kind of not that you take it for granted. It probably just wasn't an awareness, but how important that is. But if you think about obviously, you need to be able to authenticate and figure out. Yeah, this is not a spoofer. This is a real person, right? But even just a timestamp of proof of life that this person is in this point or behind enemy lines. And this is uh, a little bit apples and oranges comparison, but like for people to think about like that uh, army dude, that private who ran across the lines in North Korea, where North Korea didn't acknowledge he was crossed. Like everyone knew he was there, right? Because it was such a public deal. But if you could imagine it, if it like the world news did not exist and like it wasn't that, that publicized, that guy would just disappear. And turns out, like, obviously, he was a private and didn't have any information or utility to the North Koreans. But if you just think back in the history of the guys who have gone missing and we have no record of, they're still missing in action, or we don't find for 10 years, you can't hold a government accountable and people accountable. Like, if someone gets shot down or captured behind enemy lines and they are just disappeared, having that proof of life that that person was alive and then under the I say care under the the captivity of that that government or that entity um, they no longer are alive that you can't hold them accountable. That's just one aspect of it. But I think the proof of life piece, like getting getting a timestamp, and there's a lot more that goes into that. But um, yeah, for me, that's something I didn't quite probably grasp until going through survival school. Sure, yeah, me neither. And knowing that piece gives you the the reason to mobilize the correct response, also, right? And just because you don't have authentication doesn't mean they're not surviving behind enemy lines still. But if you can know that and you make that a high fidelity process, then you can uh, use the right assets and pull the right support knowing 
that there is someone to go rescue. And also spoofer-wise, uh, for instance, in Afghanistan, you would get uh, multiple smoke, uh, you know, spoofers popping different colored smoke as you'd go in to pick up a troops in contact. And so if you don't have good comms with them, now for Kazavak, in those cases, you know where they are and you have secure radios with them. And there still may be an enemy threat, but the the uh, search component in the authentication is already complete. So it's just combat and rescue at that point, basically. But the ability to mitigate spoofers and make sure that if if that person is rolled up, that there's procedures for that as well, that you don't go into a, a trap. So Afghanistan, permissive environment, other than, you know, you guys are down in the weeds and get AK rounds and RPGs shot at you, but sure. we're not talking double-digit SAMs and uh, other enemy fighters. What what are your thoughts on, like, a near-peer threat and the survivability and the feasibility of going out there and rescuing Jack in a more complex and dynamic environment? Sure. So this is stuff we're training to every day, and the, uh, you know, the jollies at the 33rd are hungry to go integrate with the fighters out here and we've flown multiple dedicated integration flights with our, our C models and now our F-35s um, and our Strike Eagles. And we, you know, the the outcome is that we have a lot of game in a high-end fight if we are integrating with our forces. And so if if it's an integrated fight, we have a lot of game and there's there's a lot of considerations that are favorable to our being able to get Jack even in that contested area and get out of there. So it's, it's pretty encouraging. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously like anything, it, it depends. Uh, but I know this is something, uh, you know, if you think about too, it's like red flag, right? Every, and there's one day that's dedicated to personnel recovery, right? right? Where everyone's focused on that. So this is not something that, um, we don't think about on a routine and regular basis. I know you guys are, in in the weeds, but a different different environment nowadays. It seems like it's a it's a very different environment, and so there's a lot of that in route drone time to get to a certain location. And one of the biggest strengths of combat rescue, both with the platform and with the mindset, is our ability to do ACE, so agile combat employment. So our our guardian teams, our PJs, can take their own boats to locations and stage out of there. And we can either meet them there or they can integrate or uh, execute unilaterally from those areas. And then we've executed off of small islands, just like a basically a mangrove desert island where we run ops with good C2. We'll set up a little tent forest under the trees, get uh, C2 comms. We're able to reach back to a hub and then execute missions for two days out of there. We still need to be able to get gas, food, water. But uh, if you're hub and spoking out, you remain really survivable from any sort of strike at an airfield. And then you can always come back and get gas or get gas off a tanker or a ship and then continue the mission. And so pre-positioning there, being able to then integrate with a strike or a DCA package and SID alert, XR, airborne alert for those folks and be able to get them during integrated ops and get out with the right support what's what's critical in the pacific is a rescue tanker 
or some dedicated low-speed drug asset. And those things are HCMC or KC-130. Do you have HC-130s we, at Kadena? We have them periodically, but we don't have a permanent presence. But there's a, a push. We have the 31st Rescue Squadron, which are the PJs, and the 33rd, which are the Jolly Greens. So we've made a 32nd Rescue Squadron patch for the HCs to uh, He's them out to show up. Yep. Well, have they have they been there before, or is that something that's new? Where they, they, they divest? they'll visit TDY, but I don't think they've had a permanent presence out here. It's well, not I know, obviously Moody has them, correct? And then uh, some of the guard reserve components across the country have them as well. DM and Moody have uh, HC-130 squadrons. So they have the full triad for for pararescue helicopter and and uh, HC one thirty at at DM and Moody and then guard reserve units are integrated at a handful of those bases as well. But you have Marine KC one thirty assets that are nearby. We do, and they're they're fantastic too. Um, they don't train to the uh, CSRC, so the CSR coordinator role in the way our HC one thirties are rescue dedicated kings do. And that CSRC role is fantastic. Um, we've used it uh, in, in all our, our, our new training exercises. And then also in CENTCOM, my last deployment to CENTCOM is a great asset. And they're able to sit in an offset in a survivable area and then use uh, you know, their radios and, and systems to basically pass you all the rescue data so that you can without even talking, basically pick up the survivor. So that's another critical rescue function they can serve. Yeah, you know what I like about the KC-130s is the fact that Marines put Hellfires and Griffin missiles on it. Yeah, you know, it's like they're, they're going to find a way to make this thing a killing machine. Right. And I'm pretty sure they all have drogue capability on all their C-130s, okay. which is awesome too. Yeah, that's what I read to talk to these guys that would maybe slinging hellfires and then peel it off to give someone gas and then right back into the fight or whatever. Like, man, it's pretty spicy. Yeah. Um, so can we, let's talk ACE uh, a little bit, dig, peel that onion back. So there was a Stars and Stripes article about, I think, is it Tinanen up in the Mar yeah. Northern Mariana? Yeah. yeah, I can't pronounce it. But it's the last, last really was used B-29s. Sure. I think they loaded the atomic bomb from there, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. Um, but I have talked about with a few guests with Agile Combat Employment, right, Ace? So instead of just having all your things at one spot, you spread them out so it makes it tougher to strike. But can you talk to me a little bit uh, in greater detail than what, what's that like for you guys? So it's, uh, it's, it's different in some ways for rescue. In some ways, we've been doing Ace kind of as a, a core competency since CENTCOM deployments or Afghanistan. Say Bodrum was the hub, we would ace out of little yep. fobs, but those fobs were established and they obviously existed with fuel and ammo, medical care, uh, food, water. So in this case, we're looking at uh, maybe first island chain for rescue where other forces can't operate off of, you know, places without runways, for instance. But if yep. we can preposition a fuel bladder there, get MREs palletized, in water or we can even hub out of a main airfield to soccer fields or wilderness areas and then small islands but use a, a third aircraft for logistics and then keep the two alert birds fueled up at that area 
Um, you can just remain unpredictable. You won't have all your stuff at one area. And this this scales to all fixed wing things as well um, with Tinian and Saipan and these other old World War II runways that we fought the island hopping war up the Pacific chain. Uh, you can reopen those runways, put fuel and supplies there, and then be able to execute uh, distributed operations and then just stay unpredictable and really make target tiers on other side have to make really hard choices about where to, to strike. And then hopefully you're not where they thought you were anyways. Right. So as the boss, what are some of the biggest challenges you're facing today? What's the things that keep you awake? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the things that don't keep me awake. So our air crew are awesome. They are super motivated and hungry and they are, they're just like smarter and better than we were when we were youngsters. So to fly with these guys is, is like a real honor out here, uh, and to integrate with all our force. But I think the, uh, just the open ocean stuff is a big consideration. Uh, fuel issues that if you're on the knitter in Nellis, you can just land, right? But you can't just right. land over the ocean. So keeping that, we have ox tanks. So keeping the ox tanks transferring in your cross check, we have random aircraft that don't like to transfer occasionally. And then you have half the gas you thought you had. So uh, situations like that, that you, that aren't at the forefront of your mind kind of, keep me up and then just keeping our dudes proficient because uh, it's, you know, you need to fly to be competent and proficient at this job. So to run that line between flying so that our folks feel confident and proficient, but they're not uh, overstretched so that they have some capacity to surge when the time comes and our folks are really good at surging and, uh, just going on alert and getting the job done when the, the time calls for it, but then being able to, to then give them downtime, but also keep them proficient when that's not going on. Uh, I don't know. I think those are like the biggest concerns, but there's, there's really a lot of positives as well. The, the biggest like institutional concern probably is getting dedicated HC one thirties out here. To, to really make PR um, like a, a coherent like plan that is in place that we can execute because because right now we're we're using AFSOC or or the Marines to help us in that case. Yeah, I would imagine that obviously if something kicked off, not having a dedicated H AC one thirty, you know, to be dedicated to the rescue mission would be a challenge. Now, flip side, I guess, is obviously if there's a jack down there, then in theory, right, everyone is dedicated right. towards that, but uh, you're still competing resources, not having something that's necessarily always chopped that's right. specifically to that. So, And then, too, it's like not having that in the big water. Because I was thinking, uh, again, I do remember one rescue the 41st did while I was casual there. It was the Gulf of Mexico. It was just two guys that capsized or someone fell off the boat. I don't know, uh, shady stuff, but it took a while to find it. They were doing, you know, grid pattern searches and things like that. Like you need a big old, you need lots of assets flying relatively fast ish, be able to cover enough ground to go out there and search for people. So yeah, it's one thing if you have to fly 
you know, four hours, hit the tanker to rescue somebody. And maybe you have 20 minutes loiter time before you need to hit the tanker again. And that's enough time to rescue them, but it's not enough time to find them. So if you have to search, that just extends that loiter time, you know, potentially exponentially. Yeah. Uh, and then using, committing, making the decision to use a tanker as a bingo where there's no other land or <laughs> is pretty spicy too, right? Uh, yeah. Because if you slay that drogue, you put the probe through the parachute <laughs> there and it's just, you know, flipping in the wind. Like that's a, it's a spicy yeah. to be. Yeah. It's self-critiquing immediately. Immediately. And uh, not, not a whole lot of good options. All right. Talk to me before we wrap up here. One, and we can cover anything else you want. But I want to know uh, what is the most challenging as operating, you know, in that environment? What's the most challenging for you or what do you think it is for just kind of the average pilot out there where we're, we're talking about these things? You've mentioned like numerous things that all sound absolutely terrifying to me, but I think, to you? I think coming to Kadena just like breeds and builds airmanship in that other units you can look outside and is a is a rescue platform you can fly you know vfr and just look outside and maneuver the aircraft but here no horizon doing gunnery at night so you're attacking this island shooting it going into breaks doing max rate turns you have to use a cross check doing night water hovers uh you just have to go from the the systems out in a lot of uh fundamentals are based outwards in. So when you learn to hover in a Huey, you're going to look outside and then you're going to maybe build it a cross check to keep your heading straight with your HSI or something. But here you have to just be systems based. So our, our cues are on our heads down display, which is the FLIR image. And we'll put that flight path vector. Um, the whiskey will change this with the FMS, but it'll still be systems out kind of. So I think the biggest challenge here is to learn to fly your cross-check and go from inside the aircraft out. And then I think about it as if I look outside and I can't see anything, well, that's fine because I still have a tight cross-check and I know where I'm at with, with two INSs and I have a good radar altimeter. But if I do look outside and I can see something, well, it's awesome because now I can see something and uh, it makes it a little safer. But if you do it the other way, you can go out and whether you're in CENTCOM or here, you can have nights where it's just, you literally can't land because it's so hard with uh, the visual illusion on a dry lake bed or a RVA, restricted visual approach. But if you're using your system, it's it's well within the realm of, of uh, safe and repeatable. So I think coming here and on your first TTO, local LMQT flight going out to your loom with the IP, in a two shift to go shoot at an island, no horizon getting bloomed out uh, is a huge challenge. And once you adapt to that, you are just at a higher level of airmanship where you can kind of operate in any AOR where the helicopter can fly. That sounds terrible. I've, I've told the story on the, the podcast before, it was like the do a night dive glide attacks over the water, blow a loom. And uh, me and Chaos, the guy I was with, we both did one pass each. Like, this is not smart. Because boats look like stars. Stars look like boats. Um, and so now when you put this down at, like, I don't know, 75 feet, doing turns, like, everything you're describing there would be incredibly challenging. And I imagine, too, MBG-wise, so even if, like, 
there is illumination and if you are getting something from it um you're still looking through a social right you guys aren't using panoramics or anything like that yet so i flew a lot of my career on on green nvg panoramics which had a 120 degree field of view and those were fantastic a lot of people didn't like them because they were a little more bulky and it was harder to see like the overhead console and the the throttle quadrant area but i really liked them i thought it gave a factor of safety but what we have now are white green phosphorus uh so a different technology and it is just it's a world of difference like i say there's no dark nights anymore because even with cloud cover low alum that white phosphorus just gives you tremendous acuity compared to the old technology we only have the 2.2 version so it's 40 degree field of view so yeah that is is kind of looking through binoculars or a soda straw in okay. that case uh and it's not good compared to seeing daytime with good sun alum right but it is so much better than the old technology I think it's good to paint the picture too for those listening. Like if you're sitting in the seat, like think about wearing one. Well, you're wearing a helmet. There's lots of loud, loud noise, right? You got the rotors going. You got the radios going. Um, so there's some sensory deprivation that's going on there. But too, when you have like the MVGs on, you know, it's this thing sticking out from your eyeballs. And like you said, like if you need to see the overhead panel or to look down and see the instrument panel, like sometimes you're having to move your head around or your eyes around. Like it's not just looking like your view is obstructed. Um, I, I don't know if I assume the white phosphorus one, if you look at the instrument panel, it's probably no good, right? I mean, like no 16. It's all gobbledygook. So you have to look yeah. under the goggles. So you'll keep your head straight ahead or to the side. You'll do a scan maybe, but really your eyes are outside on your goggles and then they're under the goggles inside, but you won't move your head. So it'll be a really quiet cross check with your body movement. It'll just be the eyes below, eyes through, and then you'll look up in between your goggles and your helmet mount to the overhead console to where the throttles are. Um, and that's its own adjustment period, right? And it steals 20 IQ points for your first flights because you have five radios and your data link and your your heads down cues and, and then your you know, trying to look outside, but there's nothing to see, but there still is if you look hard enough. Uh, then you have your FLIR image. You can cross-check through that too. So I think that adage of if there's no good pilots, there's just good cross-checks is like really pretty true flying the helicopter in our most uh, uh, restrained environment, which is nighttime, low alum, open ocean. I'm curious to see, you know, with VR goggles and the things that are coming out, um, how much better that will make cheer flying or the first couple flights, right? Like people, and I included, right? Like you don't want to get rid of training and just like, up, oh, it's all going to be video games now, et cetera. Like you need to get air up under you to build some airmanship. But like, if you think about, I studied on like a paper chart, you know, poster board that was on my wall, but then to translate that into your first couple flights, we're like, oh no, these switches are actually back and behind me while I've been practicing this flow in front of me, again, you lose 20 IQ points, penguins are falling off the iceberg, right. icebergs melting, whatever it might be, you're having to spin the brain bites. But if you're using like the VR goggles and things like that, yeah, you can actually like look back and see, oh, I need to flip the switch. So, you know, one day. One day, I think it'll be so much better. Uh, really good stuff. And then 
you know, one day, hopefully there's a visor or something that's just seeing a synthetic vision of what's going on at night versus your 40 degree field of view. Yeah. One day. One day. One day. Yeah. All right, Shiner, as we wrap up here, any parting shots, anything you think people need to know about rescue, Kadena? Yeah, I, so we're going to get Jack and uh, rescue him, and we're going to train hard to, to be in the fight, integrated, ready to do that. And our partners here know that. And I think I was able to fly with one of my buddies, Voodoo, from the academy. We were alcove mates, and we went and, and flew together, him as a flight lead, me as a flight lead and integrated and it was just like a really cool experience so like i hope that those dudes know and we're going to be there to get them give them more confidence to get after it and uh go get the target so it's a cool place to be out here and uh it's an honor to fly with all the the folks out here the 33rd 31st and then uh all the folks getting after it uh flying the the fixed wing stuff at Shiner, thanks for what you do, man. Thanks for standing out there and uh, being ready to answer the call if need be and yeah, just being being on the tip of the spear, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate you, Rain. Thanks for having me on.